today's scripture reading, Judges chapter 17, verses 1 through 13. Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Judges, chapter 17, verses 1 through 13. This is God's word. There was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, The eleven thousand pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse, and also spoke it in my ears, behold, the silver is with me, I took it. And his mother said, Blessed, blessed be my son by the Lord. And he restored the eleven thousand pieces of silver to his mother, and his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal image. Now therefore I will restore it to you. So when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith who made it into a carved image and a metal image. And it was in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine and he made an ephod and household gods and ordained one of his sons who became his priest. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now there was a young man of Bethlehem in Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite, and he sojourned there. And the man departed from the town of Bethlehem in Judah to sojourn where he could find a place. And as he journeyed, he came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah. And Micah said to him, Where do you come from? And he said to him, I'm a Levite of Bethlehem in Judah, and I'm going to sojourn where I may find a place. And Micah said to him, Stay with me, and be to me a father and a priest, and I'll give you ten pieces of silver a year, and a suit of clothes, and your living. And the Levite went in, and the Levite was content to dwell with the man, and the young man became to him like one of his sons. And Micah ordained the Levite, and the young man became his priest, and was in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will prosper me, because of a Levite as priest. Amen. Before I begin, I want to tell Micah that you are named not after this man, but you are named after Micah the prophet. This Micah is not so good, but we're not talking about this Micah as a namesake, so don't feel sad today. A comedian once quipped, just because you are offended doesn't mean you are right. Just because you're offended doesn't mean you're right. A lot of people are offended these days by a lot of different things. But if two, two different people are offended by two opposite things, who is right? We can get offended even by the right thing because we don't want to do the right thing. I think that's a very insightful observation. But we can also say, just because you are sincere doesn't mean you are doing the right thing. And just because you are religious doesn't mean you are pleasing God. Of course, we are not denigrating the importance of sincerity and authenticity. Simply doing the right thing without sincerity verges on hypocrisy, and we all know how much God despises hypocrisy. But in this era of Instagram and, Instagram and Photoshop, authenticity may be a rare commodity, which we can certainly have more of. But 
sincerity cannot make something right. We all have been sincerely wrong about many things. And we see an instance of that in today's passage. Even though Samson is the last judge in the book of Judges, the book itself is not finished yet. We still have five more chapters to go. As we begin this new section in the book, we notice that there is no time indicator, such as after Samson died. The events in these last five chapters could have happened at any time during the period of Judges. And it is most likely that what happened in these last chapters took place before Samson's time. Yes, Judges is a historical book, and as such, it is generally organized according to the chronological order. Even then, it's very possible that some of the judges were living at the same time, just serving in different areas of Israel. It seems like these last chapters were added as the epilogue to the book of Judges, and they serve to show what was going on in Israel during the time of the Judges. Remember, remember the two introductions we had at the beginning? We have two epilogues as well to balance the book, and this shows the perfect organization of this book. And these two epilogues reinforce the main idea of the book, which was introduced at the beginning. Everyone did what was evil in his, uh, what was right in his own eyes, which is to say everyone did what was evil in God's eyes. But in this last section, the stories do not revolve around the judges. So they give us a glimpse into what was going on with the people of Israel themselves. In this message, we'll first see Micah's mother's misguided religiosity. Then we will see Micah's misguided religiosity. Then we will see how Jesus represents true religion and what that means for us. It seems like Micah comes from a very well-to-do family. We don't hear anything about Micah's father. Maybe he passed away. But we do hear that his mother had 11 hundred pieces of silver stolen. This amount was not a small change. We read in verse 10 that Micah hired a young Levite as his family priest. And for the annual salary for him, he offered 10 pieces of silver with some benefits, a suit of clothes and lodging. That means 11 pieces of silver would have been enough to pay his salary for 110 years. Not only that, when the money is returned, Micah's mother has no problem setting aside 200 pieces of silver to make a carved image and a metal image. This could be a sign of her religiosity, giving sacrificially beyond her means, or it may be that she was rich enough to spend a large sum of money without fretting. Actually, Micah's mother seems to be both rich and religious. In this short story of 13 verses, the name of the Lord is mentioned three times, and Micah's mother cannot seem to say anything without mentioning the name of the Lord. When the money she lost is returned to her by her son, 
she blesses him by the Lord, verse 2. And as a token of her gratitude, she says, I dedicate the silver to the Lord, verse 3. But I'm sure as you have uh, noticed, there's something quite disturbing about her devotion to God. As a token of her gratitude for the money returned safely, she sets aside 200 pieces of silver to make a carved image and a, an image and a metal image. What are these things? The phrase, a carved image, is a cl clear allusion to the second commandment, which forbids the Israelites from making any carved image for worship. But Micah's mother talks as if she had no clue. I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal image. She says this with great pride. How ironic this is. She wants to show her gratitude to God, but she's doing it in a way that is repulsive to God. So repulsive, in fact, that in the second com commandment, the Lord sp speaks of it as an iniquity that is tantamount to hating God, which will bring God's judgment to the third and the fourth generations of the perpetrator, Exodus 25. But was it okay because she did not make a carved image of a pagan goddess or goddess, God, but of the Lord, Yahweh? Of course not. Do you remember what happened to the Israelites at Mount Sinai when they made a golden calf and worshipped it? This golden calf was not a carved image of a pagan idol. It was meant to be an image of Yahweh who brought you out of the land of Egypt, Exodus 30-4. Even so, God was angry with their action, so angry in fact, that he was about to wipe out the whole nation of Israel and start all over again with Moses and his descendants, Exodus 30 to 10. Yet, Micah's mother thinks this carved image of God would be a wonderful gift to her son. And in giving it to him, she was not blessing him, was she? Rather, she was giving him a source of grave danger. And this is given as an example of the deplorable condition of Israel at that time. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. I have no reason to doubt that Micah's mother was sincere about her religious life. But she was a classic example of being sincerely wrong about God. What was her problem? Hopefully it was not a deliberate disregard for what she knew was God's will. Although it's hard to imagine that she did not even know the second commandment. But even if she acted out of ignorance, she would not be off the hook. Acting out of ignorance, of course, is not as bad as willingly going against God's commands. But ignorance is no excuse. See whether it works when a CHP officer pulls you over or in the court of law, or with the IRS when you are having an audit on your tax returns. It would be even less acceptable in the divine tribunal. Ignorance may mitigate how much we are guilty, but it will not remove our guilt. 
God has given us not only the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, but also the second commandment. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Not only does God command us to worship Him alone, He also tells us how and how not to worship Him. That is, it is not enough just to worship God. We have to worship Him according to what God has prescribed. Similarly, God commands us to love Him with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength, but God did not leave us to our own devices in how we love Him. He has given us the Ten Commandments and other commandments in the scriptures to show us how and how not to love Him. So Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. When Micah's mother broke the second commandment, she was no longer worshiping Yahweh even though she was using His name. She was rather worshiping an idol. Her own idea of Yahweh not the true God of the Bible. This is one of the rationales behind the second commandment. Why do people want to make images of God when God is a spirit without any bodily form or shape? I think this reflects our deep desire to make God according to our own image, in our likeness. We want God to be what we want Him to be and do what we want. A sinner doesn't want a personal God who is sovereign over him and to whom he's accountable. He wants God to be simply magic. When we wish upon a star, makes no difference who you are, anything your heart desires will come to you. We want God to be that star and no more. The obvious downside is that such a God is just a figment of our imagination and it will fail us and disappoint us in the end. Brothers and sisters, I hope you are convinced that it is imperative for us to know God's will and how diligent we should be to learn about God's will from scriptures. If we don't, we can think we are doing what pleases God when we are actually doing what is offensive to Him. And we can start avoiding this terrible mistake by simply asking why we do what we do the way we do it. Is it because it is right in our own eyes? Or is it because it is right in God's own eyes according to scriptures? Vance uh, is there. Maybe you want to check his temperature and stuff so he could come in. I think he's just staying there. And I hope that we can examine this, maybe even every morning as we begin the day, as we think about the way we do things, even from parenting to what we do at work. Why are we doing this? And why are we doing it the way we do? Moving on to Micah. Micah is an interesting character. This story begins normally enough. There was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. We are introduced to the man by where he lived and what his name was, pretty typical as far as the introduction goes. Then the story quickly turns weird. 
we learned quickly that he stole 1,100 pieces from, of silver from his mother and he was returning them to her because he heard his mother cursing the thief. Stealing is wicked. You know what I mean if you've ever been robbed before. But it is so much worse when someone from your own family steals from you. This is so bad that nobody in his right mind would do. But what is worse, it doesn't seem like Micah even needed the money. When he heard his mother cursing the thief, he was able to return it right away. Also, seeing how generous his mother treats him after his confession, we suspect that he would have gladly given the money if he simply asked for it. This reminds me of what St. Augustine said about stealing pears from his, with his friends. He says they did not steal these pears because they were hungry or they wanted pears. They dumped them on pigs after barely tasting them. Why did they steal these pears then? Augustine says it, that is the act of stealing, was foul and I loved it. I loved my own undoing. Maybe that is why Micah stole from his loving mother. He just delighted in this wicked thing for the thrill of it. That is twisted, isn't it? Yet, Micah seems very religious like his mother. He welcomes his mother's gift of a carved image, put it in the shrine in his house, made an effort and household gods, and ordained one of his sons as a priest. But he knew the law well enough that this was not an ideal arrangement. His son, like him, was an Ephraimite, not a Levite. So when a young Levite came along to his house from the town of Bethlehem in Judah, Micah welcomed him with open arms and replaced his son with him as his family priest. Ecstatic by this great fortune, Micah says, Now I know that the Lord will bless me and prosper me because I have a Levite as a priest. But you also sense that many things are quite disturbing about the way Micah practices his religion. His mistakes were not much different from his mother's, except that his were more extensive. As I read about Micah, I cannot help but think of the Italian mafia in the movies that we watch, committing all kinds of cruel crimes and yet so religiously devoted to the Roman Catholic Church. Micah's actions highlight an important aspect of his theological misunderstanding as we see in verse 13. Now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as priest. This thought was so wrong on so many fronts. First, just because the young man was a Levite didn't mean that he could be a priest. Even among the Levites, only the sons of Aaron could be priests. The Levites were called to assist, assist the, the sons of Aaron, but they could not be priests themselves. Micah might have known this, but maybe he thought that a Levite was at least better than his son as his family priest. If so, he was amending God's law as he saw fit. 
How presumptuous of him. Priesthood was a sacred matter which was dear to God's heart. To tinker with it was a serious sin. Consider what God said to Aaron. I give your priesthood as a gift and any outsider who comes near shall be put to death. How misguided and irreligious was Micah's religious devotion to God. Second, we must point out the shrine in his house. The Lord said to the people of Israel, Take care that you do not offer your burnt offerings at any place that you see, but at the place that the Lord will choose in one of your tribes. Deuteronomy 12, 13 and 14. That means Israel was supposed to have just only one location as God's dwelling place and as God's designated place of worship. Micah was going directly against this command when he set up a shrine in his own house. Third, of course, is the carved image and household gods, the evil of which we already talked about in conjunction with Micah's mother. Lastly, think about all the laws Micah breaks in this short passage. The eighth and the fifth commandments by stealing from his mother, homemade idols of pilfered silver, production of a private shrine, making of a personal priest, son, adopting of a personal priest, Levite, self-made religious paraphernalia. In short five verses, and these verses, Micah breaks so many laws, and yet he expects God to bless him for all the laws that he had broken. How ironic and tragic. Along with his mother, Micah provides another gross example of everyone doing what was right in his own eyes at that time. They show us how this mindset of autonomy, being a law unto yourself, was prevalent not only in the realm of ethics, but also in the realm of religion. What Micah and his mother engaged in was not an outright apostasy leaving their religion, or idolatry, worshipping another god. It was what we call syncretism, mixing their religion with other religions. So while they worshipped Yahweh, they also had household gods, which were probably figurines of pagan gods and goddesses, as well as the carved image of Yahweh, which was forbidden by God's law. How bad is this? Today's passage simply says, Everyone did what was right in his own eyes, verse 6. There are no angry words of God or his prophets. The tone is almost matter of fact. But we should not take this statement lightly. What happens when a couple says to each other, you do what you want, I will do what I want. That relationship is pretty much over. And that is exactly what the Israelites were saying, doing with their God at that time. Mike and his mother show that one does not have to totally and expressly renounce God to do this. We can do this while worshiping God and serving God if we do it according to what is right in our own eyes instead of what God commands. Especially in the area of worship, but also in all areas of our lives. 
But that is not the only way this passage is condemning what Micah was doing, according to George Schwab. He points out how Micah's name is introduced as Mikayehu in verse 1 in Hebrew Bible, and how it changes simply to Micah in verse 5. Micah's real name, Mikayehu, means who is like Yahweh. Micah simply means who is like. Schwab says, now and for the rest of the story, it is Micah, Yahweh, having been subtracted out of his original name. This proprietor of idolatrous religion should not bear the divine name, so the narrator secular, secularized it. Obviously, in real life, it stayed the same. The author profanes the man whose silver is pseudo-sanctified. Do you see what's going on? The storyteller takes Yahweh out of his name. How terrible it is. How, what a dreadful thing it is to have the name of God taken away from you. The name of God which testifies that you belong to God. When that name is taken away, what do you have left? Both Micah and his mother challenge us to think about the way we do things, whether it is right only in our own eyes or in God's eyes. How do we know what we are doing is right in God's eyes? The answer is simple. Even little children in Sunday school know it. The Bible, of course. But today's story takes us further. It shows us how dangerous it is to have a shallow, incomplete knowledge of God's Word. We are prone to take what we like from God's Word and fit it into what is right in our own eyes, which will lead to syncretism. We must uphold God's Word even above providence. Just because there's an open door doesn't mean that God is direct directing you that way. In the animation movie Frozen, Princess Anna and Prince Hans sing of an open door as a confirmation that their love was meant to be. But that was far from the truth. Prince Hans was tricking Princess Anna to be king. So just because there's an open door doesn't mean that it's God's will. Lawson Younger points out, in Judges 17 and 18, various sinful activities achieve success. Micah's theft, in a number of ways, becomes positive for him. Not only was there no punishment or restitution for the crime, but Micah receives a blessing from his mother. When a young Levite walks in the door, Micah must have thought that God was really blessing him because he made a household shrine and made household gods and received this carved image. Yes, an open door may be a way that God is directing our steps, especially in matters of indifference. When the Bible doesn't say clearly whether this was right or wrong, yes, an open door you can follow. But an open door of providence that is contrary to God's word is a deadly trap. And we must think about it. We must think about why we want to go into that open door. And we better make sure 
that it is according to God's word and that we sincerely desire to follow God's ways. As we conclude, if anybody had the right to expect God to bless and prosper him, it was Jesus, wasn't it? He never did what was right in his own eyes. Actually, that is not entirely correct. His heart was so perfectly united with God's heart that what was right in his own eyes was exactly what was right in God's own eyes. That is true religion. The union of hearts and will between God and his people. For us not just to begrudgingly follow God's will, but to desire God's will as our greatest blessing and treasure and happiness. Having perfectly obeyed his heavenly Father, he had all the right to say in his heart, Now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I've kept the law of God perfectly. But that is not what happened, was it? He did not keep the law perfectly for himself. He did it for us as our representative. He had to lead a life of without any blemish so he could offer himself as the sacrifice for our sin. To give us all the blessings he deserved, he took upon himself our guilt and endured our punishment. Brothers and sisters, we are confronted with two radically different types of life. One that is represented by Micah and his mother, and the other represented by Jesus Christ. One is to do what is right in his own eyes. The other is to do what is right in God's eyes. One is to pursue one's own happiness, even to the distortion of God's word. The other is to pursue God's righteousness according to God's word. Of course, to pursue God's righteousness in this fallen world is not easy. It is not easy even when one pursues any kind of righteousness, even the version upheld by our society and culture. Because we tend to do what is easy and comfortable rather than what is right. To do the right thing in many situations can be costly and even dangerous. That's why many people admire those who actually do the right thing, but they themselves are content just to stand on the sidelines and watch. If so, how much more difficult it is to pursue God's righteousness in this sinful world. Israel at the time of Jesus was supposed to be a theocratic nation. All the Jews were supposed to abide by God's law. Yet see what they did to Jesus when he proclaimed and taught about the kingdom of God. In the end, they handed him over to the Romans and had him crucified as a criminal. And Jesus said, those who would follow him would be hated and persecuted by the world as he was. What a horrible deal, do you think? To follow Jesus and suffer so much. But the contrast between the two different lifestyles doesn't end there. One is to pursue own, one's own happiness and never quite getting it. The other is to true God's righteousness 
and experiencing true joy. Micah, in the end, lost what he put his confidence in for God's blessings, the carved image and the Levite. One commentator pointed out that when he hired the, the young Levite, he said, you will be like a father to me. But the passage also says that he became like a son. Instead of having a father to protect him and take care of him, he got another dependent. That's how it is when you pursue your happiness. And so I share with you many, many times that God is like the sun and happiness is like the shadow. If you go towards God, the happiness will follow you. But if you turn away from God, you will never reach the shadow of your happiness. While Micah lost everything he pursued, Jesus, on the other hand, was full of joy. The joy that comes from doing God's will. Even when he had to endure the cross and suffer our punishment, he never lost the sight of the joy that was set before him on the other side of the grave. And he was not disappointed, was he? He was raised from the dead and he was exalted above every name and was seated at the right hand of God as our glorious God and Savior. And brothers and sisters, that is a life to which we have been called. To believe in Jesus Christ is to be united with him in his life, death, and resurrection, both in his suffering and glory. Paul says that we have been called not just to believe in his name, but also to suffer for his sake. But if we suffer with him, we will also receive his glory. That is the promise that God has given to us. Suffering is inevitable in this fallen world. Whether you pursue happiness or God's righteousness. Will you, will you suffer for the illusion of happiness unto disappointment and loss? Or will you suffer for Christ unto eternal life and everlasting joy? The one who died and rose again promises to us that when we suffer for Christ's sake, he will not abandon us. He will be with us every step of the way to bring us into the, to the green pastures and quiet waters of God, both in this life and in the life to come. The great paradox of life is that when you want to gain your life and gain happiness, you will lose them. But if you are willing to lose your life and lose your happiness for the sake of Christ, you will gain not only life, but also true joy and true happiness that is found in the bosom of God. Would you pursue a religious life that is for your happiness? Or would you pursue true religion which finds its happiness in God himself and in doing God's will, which is good and true and beautiful. I hope that the choice is obvious to you and God will help you to make the right choice. And most of you have made the right choice and having chosen that option, that you will be faithful till the end.
until God should give you the crown of victory and glory to share with Christ forevermore. Let's pray together. Oh Lord our God, we give you thanks and praise for your wonderful Savior Jesus Christ and the life that he lived and the example that he gave us. Oh Lord, we confess that although we desire to glorify you, oftentimes we want to mix that with our own glory, with our own comfort. Lord, you have taught us through Micah and his mother and their mistakes how important it is for us to know your will, how important it is for us to know your word as it is and not rely upon our own ideas and opinions. Oh Lord, I pray that we will receive your word as it truly is, your word, the eternal truth. And help us, Lord, to embrace it with full faith and conviction. And help us, Lord, to commit our lives to live by it, fully knowing that our own resolve is not enough, but Christ lives in us. And he has given us the Holy Spirit not only to forgive us of our sin, but to enable us to live as Christ did. Knowing this lofty and noble call, and knowing how we are not able to achieve this call, help us to abide in Christ. Help us to cry out to Him and walk by with Him and abide in Him so that He might be able to do what we cannot do and glorify himself in and through our lives. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.